turn your Bibles with me, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter 1. I've just been seeking the Lord just as far as what word he would bring this morning. I was planning on launching into a series. And I don't know, honestly, church, if I'm going to be doing that next week or the week after. Uh, but God has been stirring some things in my heart. Uh, I set the series aside as he began to speak to me this past week. And he has laid two, I believe, significant passages of Scripture in my heart I want to bring to our attention and allow us to jump in, dig into them, and allow God to speak to our hearts. That is my prayer, that God would be the one that would be speaking to our hearts this morning. I don't know if you remember this. Uh, several, several years ago, I believe it was during the Olympics or the prelims to the Olympics, but there was one particular U.S. sprinter that was regularly being called for false starts. And they analyzed this. And, and they were kind of, because he was getting on the track ready to, to run a particular qualifying sprint. And so they were, you know how they do. They talk about different runners. And they focused on this particular person. And that his tendency was to false start. But they, they kind of talked about this. And, and I, was, I was amazed. I had no idea that this is how they, they do this. But when the gun goes off, they actually give the sprinter a certain amount of time, and I, I cannot remember how much time that is, before they begin to move out of the blocks. Because they say that your response time is a certain amount. It can't be any faster than that. So if you move before that, the accusation then is that you, uh, you predicted the gun. You anticipated it. So if the gun, when the gun goes off and you move, that's not a response to it because there's no way you can respond to that fast. So there's this amount of time. And this man would come out of the blocks, he would move before that time, and he would get called for a false start. So as they analyzed this, they realized that if someone is a, a, a false starter, he will eventually jump out of the blocks before the gun goes off. But this guy didn't do that. And what they discovered is his response time was so much faster than others. And it, it was like half of what it, what it was. And, it, and understand, the response time is so small. And so they had a dilemma on their hands. Do they decrease this false start time that they allow people? You know, if you move before that amount of time, now we're going to call that a false start. Or does the runner have to slow down his response time? And I thought, you got to be kidding me. How do you tell a runner who is one of the fastest runners in the world, because he has this incredible quick response time, and he comes out of the blocks like a lightning bolt, how do you tell him, I'm sorry, but you have to slow down? How do you do that? Now, honestly, he's not having to slow down running. He's having to slow down his response time. But you never want to tell a runner that. But because of how they were uh, qualifying what a, a, a false start was, they had to do something. Now, my, this, was, this was several years ago. My memory fails me what exactly the outcome of this was. But I, my point is this, that many times we do just the opposite, isn't it? When God says go, when he says obey, our response time <laughs> is not too fast. Isn't this true? It's usually too what? Too slow. And I want to talk about that response time. Uh, the title of the sermon today is called A Flame. And my desire, church, is that God continues to ignite this flame that's, that's burning in us by his spirit, that he would ignite this flame regularly in our lives, that when Jesus says, hey, Mike, I want you to do this, I ask him when and how much, and I'm ready to do it right now, you just, you just give me the gun. Our response time, though. Because of certain factors that we're going to look at a few, we tend to hesitate at the gun. We tend to have that slow response. Or, truth be told, church, isn't this true? Sometimes we don't even respond at all. Can you imagine a sprinter stuck in the gates and he's afraid to start? No. But that is us sometimes. And we want to get past that. A flame. As we just went through this missions trip, I believe God 
did some truly amazing things in your heart. And during the uh, encouragement time, uh, certain names just kept getting mentioned over and over. And I was impressed with their testimonies that God truly did something in their hearts. Uh, Zach is one of the leaders, and Zach was sharing his testimony. Brother, I think God did something truly amazing in your heart during the missions trip. And I just noticed him, and maybe some of you else did, but Wednesday night, as he led worship, bro, when you prayed, the fire of God prayed through you. You prayed Jesus' prayer. During the Bible study, there was just a joy that came over him. I'm not sure if you ever stopped laughing during the Bible study, but there was, there was just a joy of the Lord. God ignited something in Zach, and he was one of the leaders. Um, Alex was telling me how God was doing something in him, he, stuff that he had, he had been hesitant and he was now eager to do, and God was doing something in him. Nathan Andrew, calling that brother out, where, where there he is, and God was doing something, and he was at the end saying, I want you guys to pray for me that whatever God has done in me, that he doesn't stop doing it. And you know, that's my prayer then for all of us. Whatever God was doing in you, that he doesn't stop doing that. And here's my prayer. On behind, not only does he not stop doing it, but that our response time only gets faster. Amen, church? So I believe that God is wanting to ignite something in our hearts. So to do that, I want you to turn Jeremiah chapter 1. We're going to be starting with, with verse 4 here. And it says, the word of the Lord came to me saying, let me just say here, God's word is coming to Jeremiah, and this is the first time. Now, in Isaiah, that's not the case. Isaiah's call is actually in chapter 6, but Jeremiah's call as a prophet is right here, chapter 1. It's the first word that he hears from the Lord, and it is the call of God on his life as a prophet. And this is what the Lord says. Word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Ah, sovereign Lord, I said. I do not know how to speak. I am only a child. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Now, can I assure you that my wife did not know that I was preaching this sermon today, and yet the very last song that we sang, Jesus, I will go and I will follow. That is, in essence, the message uh, though we're, it's going to be a little bit more uh, laid out and, and more to it, but that is the heart of it. Jesus is calling us to go. Jesus called Jeremiah, go, and he hesitated. Now, here's the thing. God was calling him to be a prophet. We can so easily look at this passage and say, okay, that's Jeremiah. Oh, my goodness, he was one of the major prophets not one of these minor prophets who wrote only a few chapters of Scripture, but he wrote 50-some chapters of Scripture, and, wow, that's not me, so tune out. Now, I'm going to challenge you, don't do that, because God calls every single follower of Jesus Christ. That means he calls you. He doesn't just call Jeremiah. He is called or is calling you. Now, I don't know necessarily what that call is. I believe for some of you, God has spoken to me concerning ministry and such. But, you know, God is calling. He speaks then to you. Now, the anointing of a prophet fell upon Jeremiah. He obviously was a young man. He complained about that. But he was a young man. The call of a prophet came upon him. If you were to go to Acts chapter 2 you would find Peter standing up, and when the question is asked, how are these men drunk, and it's only nine in the morning, Peter gives a defense, and in the process of giving a defense, this is something that the Spirit of God is doing. We are not drunk as you suppose, and then he preaches the gospel. 
But he gives a quote from Joel chapter 2 that I'm not going to have us look at. I'm only going to refer to. But he says that when the Spirit of God is poured out upon all flesh, your sons and daughters will prophesy. It doesn't say they're speaking tongues or give a word of knowledge or wisdom. It's the word prophesy. And here's why. Because in the Old Testament, that word for prophesy was a very generic term that was used to simply mean speaking God's words. Now, in Acts chapter 2, Peter uses it specifically for speaking in tongues. Have you ever noticed this? I mean, if you look through the quote, you don't find speaking in tongues anywhere, and yet Peter uses this to defend the Spirit of God is poured out and people are speaking as the Spirit gives them utterance. But it's specifically speaking in tongues. So my contention is, in the Old Testament anyway, the word prophecy, or to prophesy, was a generic term for speaking on God's behalf. And so I say to you, even as, there, even as Jeremiah was called to speak on behalf of God, I truly believe that God has called all of us to speak on his behalf. And yes, let me even say, he has called you to be a prophet or prophetess for him in this day. Now, I'm not saying that you're going to write scripture. I'm not saying that your middle name is going to be Jeremiah. I'm not saying that you're going to speak with the anointing of Jeremiah. He was called to a ministry that, well, I'm sure will be very different than yours. But you will speak on his behalf. Now, I'm saying this to appeal to you to tune in because this is about you. And even if we, if we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14... We find this concept of prophesying to be a general call to the body of Christ. If an unbeliever walks into the room and all are prophesying, he says, will they not fall down and say, surely God is among them? That's in chapter 14. Verse 1 says, eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially what? Prophecy. This is something that I believe God puts in our hearts. God, I want to speak on your behalf. I want you, God, to use me. Now, I understand that 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, says that there are speaking gifts and there are serving gifts. If you were to list all of the spiritual gifts, in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, they would fall in one of those two categories. Some of them, like leadership, is kind of a combination of both. I understand this. But they would fall in either of these two categories. But I don't want you to think, well, my gifting is just serving, and I cannot speak on his behalf. Then why does he tell you to go and make disciples? Are you going to use sign language? Are you going to act it out? No, you're going to speak it. Eventually, you're going to speak it. So I'm going to challenge you. The Spirit of God will anoint every single one of us here and there, some perhaps more than others, but you will speak on his behalf because you are a prophet or a prophetess, one who speaks on God's behalf in this generation. The next thing that I want us to see is that he says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb... I knew you. And this word in some uh, passages of Scripture is actually translated chosen. That's the implication here. Now, it's not saying that before I formed you in the womb, you are a believer in me or you are a follower of me. That's, not what I'm, that, that's actually a little hokey to view it that way, isn't it? That's not what he's saying. But I reached out before you even formed. I, I had this plan, and, and, and I foresaw all of this in your life, and I knew you. And it is wrapped up in this concept of God's choosing. And we actually see this concept of choosing and foreknowledge in the New Testament. But he says that, that before you were even formed, and I formed you, before I did, which, by the way, if God formed him, God formed his tongue as well. God formed your tongue. God formed your brain. God gave you an ability to speak, whether you feel like it or not. There are times in which we may feel, I cannot speak, and maybe that is not your like ultimate gifting, but you will be amazed. When you step out, God will speak 
believe you. He will do that. He will do that. But before you were even formed, he did this. And then he goes on and he says that before you were born, I set you apart. Yes, the ladies are going to be having a set-apart conference. But this is for guys to, no, don't, guys, don't go to that conference. I'm not saying that. But you too are set apart. Jeremiah was set apart. I was set apart. You were set apart for a test, for a thing, for good works that he prepared in advance for you to walk in. This is that concept of set apart. And in being set apart, you are his very own, sanctified unto a specific purpose. This is the call on your life. For us to think God could never use me, that runs contrary to the nature of Scripture and to the heart of God. You know, as a dad, man, one of the greatest joys that I have are when I see my children walk in their calling. When when I see them sharing Christ and their boldness, and I'm like, go girl, or Go for it. Yes. Awesome. And there's something inside of me as a dad that, that, ah, I love that. When I see my children walking in this calling, this is the heart of the Father for every single one of us. The heart of the Father. May he just reach out. Yeah. You go, Mike. Yeah, Gene. Yes. Oh, I love that. That is the heart of the Father for you. You, my church family, have been set apart. And he says, I appointed you as a prophet. I've covered the prophet part, but he has now appointed you. He has selected you. And in his choosing, he has then called you to a task to speak his words. And this says to the nations, to the nations, take this word. You have been called to the nations. Now, I'm not saying that every single one of you will one day go on a missions trip beyond Sanford and you'll go across the street seas to Germany or China or Malaysia or Philippines. I'm not saying that. But I tell you, we have a, a neighborhood, two of the three at least, and probably all three, that are multi-ethnic that we are seeking to reach. And in this way, By impacting these neighborhoods, people at your workplace, multi-ethnicity represented there, you will impact the nation. It's just that God, by the blessing in America, has brought the nations to us. I'm not saying then that God's not going to call you to go to a nation. He may just do that. But I'm saying there are nations represented around us today, and God is calling you, every single one of us, in some measure, to speak on his behalf to them. So what is Jeremiah's response to all of this? Oh, yeah, I'm God's man. I'm anointed. I'm going to do this. Step back, people, because here Jeremiah comes. He said, uh, clearing his, I, I think the ah uh, here is a clearing, uh, <coughs> sovereign Lord, raising his hand, objection, your honor. Um, I'm not quite so sure about this. I don't know how to speak. I'm only a child. You you can feel the insecurities. I'm a child. (laughs) Okay, let's be real here. He's not a child. He is a young man. But he feels like a child. And God is needing to speak to that feeling right now. This is how you see yourself? Really? Really? And, and there's, God knew he was going to say this, but God the Father's heart still goes out to him. And, and at, at this point, I'm sure there, there's something in the heart of God that is breaking as it does in any father's heart, and yet that sense of firmness that God calls us men to operate in at times comes forth in God the Father's response. Jeremiah is feeling inadequate. He sees himself as a child. He probably compares himself to these other men. Oh my goodness, but Lord, have you heard how this guy over here speaks? You should call him. Now he doesn't say that, but that, things like this are probably going into his going in his mind. I'm comparing myself to this guy and this guy and over. Oh my god, I, I'm a child. I'm a youth. I can't do this. 
He's like a sprinter in the blocks. The gun goes off. And you think, wait a second. And God is saying, come on, Jeremiah. And this is God's response. Do not say, I am only a child. You must go to everyone I send you and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid. I'm going to come back to that. You know, Jeremiah is not alone when Moses, probably the most incredible man of God that we know of in the Old Testament, you remember his dialogue, and I say dialogue because it went back and forth, he and God, back and forth, but God, but God, but God, at the burning bush, God called him. I'm going to sending you to Pharaoh, the, the Israelites, for a long time, 400 plus years, they've been slaves now. For a long time, the, the slavery has been so excruciating. They've been crying out to me, and I'm, I'm hearing from heaven now, and I'm coming to their rescue, and I'm sending you. Whoa, whoa, back the truck up, God. No, me, Mo, I remember, I'm the guy in which when I speak, my tongue gets stuck to the roof of his mouth. Have you ever eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches? I say, amen, that happens to me sometimes. Uh, but literally, Figuratively, he is saying, I don't know how to speak. How do, how do I speak on your behalf to Pharaoh? Yeah, remember when he wanted to kill me? Remember that thing about 40 years ago? Now, the word's probably gotten around that that Pharaoh had died, but he's not quite so sure he wants to step into the lion's den, so to speak, right now. And so he's just filled with inadequacies. Oh, my older brother, Aaron... That guy, he knows how to speak, Lord. You should, you should call him. What do you got me here? You should call him. And God was gracious. In this dialogue, back and forth, back and forth, he finally says, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do, Moses. I'm going to send Aaron. Actually, he's already on his way, and he will speak on your behalf. But he will be like a prophet to Pharaoh, and you will be like a God to him. In other words, God speaks to the prophet, the prophet speaks. So here's how this is going to work. Moses, I'm going to speak to you. You're going to speak to Aaron, and Aaron will speak to Pharaoh. What was God's heart's desire, though? That God speak to Moses, and Moses speak. Let's remove Aaron from this equation. Now, if you look at the, what goes on and, and how these plagues play out, God eventually removed Aaron, and Moses did speak directly to Pharaoh. But Moses, one of the mightiest men of God in the Old Testament, at this point he's 80 years old. Do we have anybody even close to 80 here? Nope. I didn't say if you feel like you're 80, okay? Um, no. Here's an 80-year-old man. I can't do this. Filled with inadequacies that God graciously steps in and says, okay, I'm going to have to prove my point here. And over time, God does that, and Moses realizes, maybe I can't, but God can, so I will. Maybe I can't, but God can, so I will. Now, maybe that's where you are. Maybe there are these senses of inadequacy. I'm not a good speaker. I don't even know how to tell a story. Been there, done that. And we can feel inadequate. God says, I just need you to let me. Paul, he was of a different cloth, though. Paul, I'm not sure if that guy ever felt inadequacies. I don't know. I don't see that. But we do read, as soon as he gives his heart to Christ, he's broken, he's filled with the Spirit, Acts 9. Then, the very next verse, he goes out, he's located in Damascus. He's been praying, fasting, praying three days. Okay, first he eats something. Then he goes, and he starts proclaiming the gospel, man. If you walked on two feet, i got to tell, tell you about Jesus. Now, I'm not saying he stepped into leadership, but he stepped into a role as God's prophet, if you will. A spokesman speaking, just as you will, speaking on behalf of Jesus, telling the good news, seeking to make disciples, and just simply saying, God, just open the door, I will speak. But fear filled Jeremiah. And so God said, 
do not be afraid. If you turn to chapter, uh, verse 17, he, he then concludes this call to Jeremiah by saying this. Number one, get yourself ready. Number two, stand up. And number three, say. Get yourself ready, stand up, and say to them whatever I command you. It's kind of like in this race, a sprinter's race anyway, runners to your mark, set, and then the gun. And so I'm going to challenge you. God does want to prepare you. Runner, I'm speaking to you, to your mark. Get ready. Get ready. Whatever God is continuing to fill you up with Scripture, continuing to press you in during struggles closer to the heart of God. The, the more you know the heart of God, the better you will be able to represent the heart of God. Is that not true, church? So, intimacy. And he's, this is part of the preparation. There's, there's, there's much that can go depending on that specific call and gifting of speaking on his behalf that God does give you. <coughs> Excuse me. And then he says, you will need to stand up. You'll need to get set. And then take that step and speak the word. That is probably the hardest thing. We can do the preparation. That's easy, okay? Uh, well, sometimes not, but that, that's, that's the more comfortable thing to do. We can get set. We can, we can talk about evangelizing, and, and we can go, but the last one, go. Take that step. That's the most difficult. That's where we then have to overcome the fears. You've heard me say this. The opposite of fear would be courage, but courage is not the absence of fear. I've heard it said this way, courage is fear that has said its prayers. Every warrior that goes to battle has fear in his heart. Every warrior who goes to the battlefront has fear in his heart. The reason why he doesn't turn tail and run is because of what? Courage. And it's the courage that overcomes the fear. Every great man of God, if you read his biography, he will share with, I will, it, it, maybe in a candid moment he will, <laughs> he will share about the fears that he has had to struggle with. But that courage outweighed the fear. And he did not allow the fear to cause him to hesitate in the starter's blocks. So now let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. <clears throat> and this is where we're going to kind of bring things together here. This is where the title of the message, A Flame, is going to start making a little bit more sense. <clears throat> Excuse me. 2 Timothy is written to, help me out, church. Timothy, thank you, yes. By Paul, he is not in Caesarea waiting to be heard by Festus or Felix or King Agrippa. That was in the late 50s. He is not under house arrest, 60 to 62 AD. It is even after what some theologians call his fourth missionary journey that in some of your Bibles, they have kind of pieced a journey together, and they don't do that based on the book of Acts, because Acts ends at his when he is in his rented house under house arrest. It is not afterwards. But they piece this together because of in some of Paul's letters, while he's writing specifically to individuals like Timothy, <clears throat> he talks about meet me here, uh, we will go here for Timothy. <clears throat> in chapter 1, he says, I dropped you off in Ephesus, and I went on to Macedonia, and so here's what you need to do in Ephesus while I'm not there. And he gives Timothy a task. This letter is written when Paul is within a year, perhaps even weeks or months before his eventual death. Tradition says he was beheaded. He is in a dungeon. Uh, Onesiphorus has, Onesimus has tried to find him. He says, he looked hard for me, and he finally found me. 
Um, he is in chains because he's asking Timothy for his cloak. It appears that it is a dungeon, drafty, cold. He is not in a nice, fire-lit, warmed house that he was when he was in Rome the first time under arrest. This eventually leads to his death. You can read chapter 4, how he was brought before Caesar the first time. God spared him, but he feels as if this is my time. God saved me from the lion's mouth, and he will usher me safely into his kingdom, but I'm ready. And then he shares this at the very outset of the letter to Timothy in view of what I've just shared with you. He says, Timothy, verse 6, for this reason, going back to previous verse concerning his sincere faith, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity. The Greek word here is not the typical Greek word phobos, meaning fear. A different word that means timidity or cowardice. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity or cowardice, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner. He goes on to say in verse 12, that is why I am suffering as I am, yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. These, if you will, would be Paul's last words. And he is calling a trusted friend, an apostle in his day, Timothy, who had been a part of his own apostolic entourage, now overseeing Ephesus and, and other works, plants, church plants that Paul had done years before. And, and Timothy carries about him this spiritual authority to move in these particular leadership giftings. And yet he calls him to fan into flame the gift of God which is in him. And he challenges him, do not be ashamed. There is something within Timothy that is holding him back. He has no doubt, uh, Paul that is, has, has called, come visit me. And he's kind of wondering, you know, I'm sure he got the word. I'm not sure why he's not coming. And we find out later that Demas has deserted him. In fact, everyone has left him, and he stands alone except for Luke. And he calls Timothy, and he says, do not, you do not do this. Come to me. Don't be ashamed of my chains. Don't be ashamed of the gospel that I am proclaiming. And guess what? You're proclaiming it too. You're just doing it in safer territory. Come to me. Don't be ashamed. Now, it's, it's not like Timothy was being called to this huge task. And come on, Timothy, just lay it all on the line and stand up for Jesus and proclaim the gospel in Rome. And, you know, if you get chained up like me, so be it. He's just, there is something in Timothy, this hesitation in which Timothy is he's starting to be a coward. He's a leader in the church. But there is a fear. What if? What if I go to Rome and I am identified with Paul and I too get put on the stand and I too am thrown into prison and Paul, he's, I'm hearing him say my end is at hand and what if that's me? I'm still a young man. I've got years to go. Lord, you wouldn't call me to Rome, would you, and lay it on the line? It's just to visit Paul. Well, can I just say this? To you, and there is some speculation in what I'm about to share, but I think if we piece things together, we get this perspective that Timothy did respond. He did go to Rome. It's very possible that he was put in prison, but it says in Hebrews 13, 23, and, and I do not believe that Paul was the author of Hebrews, but the author of Hebrews did know Timothy quite well. And he says, 
encourage Timothy because he has now been released from prison. Now, if we were to look at he, the book of Hebrews, because of how it refers to the priesthood, the temple, that it seems to still be in existence, this letter was written before 70 AD. Maybe not too much more. And soon all of these sacrifices at the end of chapter 8, he says those things, the, 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 the law has become obsolete, and what's become obsolete will soon fade away. 70 AD, it didn't fade away so much. It was destroyed. No more sacrifices. The law, can't even do it. The temple, completely destroyed and leveled. Timothy has been released, and he responded to this. So I want to tell you that we can face things just like Timothy, even as a leader, and we can be slow out of the blocks. Maybe it's because of a hurt that we've experienced. Maybe it was being so close to persecution. Maybe Timothy himself had a brush with imprisonment but escaped and just thought, oh my goodness, I could have died. And now he's skittish. He's hesitant. I want to be more careful. This word, before I share that, let me give you an illustration here. How many of you, and I'm, I'm talking to you, young, you older people, that in your younger days, you ran track on a cinder track? Any of you ever run on a cinder track? Donald, when you did the high hurdles, did you ever have to run on a cinder track? Oh, okay. Those of you who raised your hand, how many, did you ever fall on the cinder track? Oh, man. Yeah, oh, my goodness. My dad was a track coach. He always had a first aid kit because Brandywine High School, where I went to high school, had a cinder track. And especially as you, if you were to run the hurdles, that's the way I say, God bless you, Donald, you did not have a cinder track. But you, if you don't clear that hurdle properly and it catches your foot and you fall, every single one of our hurdlers fell on that cinder track at some point. And here's the, and my dad, of course, is doctoring them up and wiping the blood off and patching them up and all of this. But you got to do it a special way so they can bend their knee, blah, blah, blah. The next step for my dad to do was help them overcome the fear of clearing the hurdle. Because you have to clear it low, as low as you can, without catching your foot on it. If you catch your foot, hello. But if you jump too high, it takes, it adds time to your, your sprint. So you have to clear it and skim it. That's why if you remember in Chariots of Fire, they, yeah, he's wealthy, so I guess he could do, he has these little champagne glasses on each of the hurdles, and the goal was to make it so that he got as low as he could, but he did not cause the wine glass to bobble, to, to fall rather. And so that was hard. And for a sprint, a, a high hurdler especially, when you ran on that cinder track, you had to overcome that fear of what if I fall again? And I would venture to say that Timothy at some point fell. Whatever it was, whatever brush of death he had, whatever it was, we don't know, but it instilled this sense of fear. And Paul doesn't use the typical word fear. He says cowardice. Ooh, that's striking a little close to home, Paul. Paul, as a father, he's urging him and he's calling out of him that gift that God placed in him. Now, the gift that's used here is not the word typically used in the Greek for the gift of the Holy Spirit that's used, for example, in the book of Acts. That's the Holy Spirit's deposit in us that empowers us for many. So that is not this. And the reason why I suggest that is because it, that Greek word is dora, this Greek word is charisma. And is usually were the word given for the gift of a spiritual gift, either eternal life or a spiritual gift such as prophecy or word of knowledge or serving or leadership. But he's saying that gift that was actually given to you when I laid my hands on you, that's the gift. I want to call that gift out of you. Now, what is that gift? The best we can do in, in piecing this together is in the previous book of 1 Timothy, 
chapter 4, verse 14, Paul reminds Timothy, and he says, very similar language, do not neglect your gift, which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Apparently, when the body of elders was laying hands on him, either for his ordination or for him being sent out into Paul's apostolic entourage in Acts 16, when exactly this took place, we don't know, but the elders are gathered around. No doubt Paul is there laying his hands on him, and a prophetic word comes out, and an unusual thing happens. By this prophetic word that comes out, God imparts a gift to Timothy. Now, in the previous verse, right before verse 14, he mentions preaching and teaching. Is it preaching and teaching? Is it evangelism? Is it this anointing for apostolic ministry? Whatever it is, it is a speaking gift that he has been holding back. And this, let me say it, this cowardice was holding back this gift. And it was dousing the flames. And he's trying to stir this flame up and, and encourage him to, to move forward. Fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now let me remind us that this gift, charisma, spiritual gift, the root of that word is charis, which is grace. The gift that God has placed in your heart, it is grace-empowered. It is not God saying, you know what, I really like this talent that you have. I think I want to use that on my behalf and for my kingdom. God is anointing you, and it's his grace. That means you can't do it apart from him. That means that you cannot operate in the flesh and be anointed. That means you must be fully reliant upon God's Spirit to operate through you by God's grace. This is about God's grace. No, it is not just the grace of God that has given you this gift, but that gift itself, that grace gift, is an avenue for God's grace. Because God is going to speak through you and work through you and that working is his grace. So his grace is seen in the giving and operating of the gift. And his grace is seen as you move in that gift, speaking through you, working through you. And his, his grace is manifested in this person's life that you're speaking to, or people, plural. So it's grace from beginning to end, church. This is about what God delights to do in you. Again, this reveals the father heart of God. This is not about you. The problem is that we get in the way, and our fears and our inadequacies, they get in the way, and God is saying, you know what, just, just please, let me be firm here, but get out of the way so I can do what I want to do through you. Just take that step. And that step for you is faith. When he says, right in the very beginning of verse 6, he says, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame. What is that reason? If you go back to the previous verses, he says, you know what? Ever since I've known you, Timothy, there is a sincere faith in your heart. I saw it in your mom, and I saw it in your grandmother, and it resides in you, this, this faith. It's sincere. It, it's not veneered. It's not skin deep, if you will. It's, it's, it's through and through you. It's who you are. There's this faith in you, and it's sincere. It's pure. I want to call that out of you. I want to appeal to that faith. Because faith in this case is simply taking the step. That's it. Without taking the state, that, that step, there is no manifestation of God's grace. Remember, by grace, through, help me out, church, faith. And that's not just for salvation. That's for everything that we do. It is going to happen by God's grace through faith. We have to take the step. So what does it mean to fan 
this into flame? Is there something that we've just got to do? I've, I've got to read the Bible three hours a day. I've got to pray for four hours a day. I've got to go to church every time the doors are open. I've, that's a, kind of a good thing. Though. But I've got to, we've got to do this, and I've got to evangelize every day, actually three times a day. And God, you've got to stir me up. I want to be passionate about you. That's how, is that how we stir this gift up? I'm sorry, but that is too much about you. It's just too much about you. Where's the grace in this? Stirring up that flame is taking a step. That is all you have to do. Timothy, come to me. All you got to do is take one step out of your front door and let God bring you the rest of the way. Can you do that for me? Can you come to me? And it's not so much a big deal that, well, by coming to me, thousands are going to get saved. No. There's something that I'm seeing in your heart, Timothy, and God's needing to get rid of that. There's this hesitation in the spirit, and it's quenching what God wants to do in you and through you. And so I'm calling you out as a father in the faith. Take the step. Fan this into flame. I appeal to the faith, the sincere faith that I see in you. And now understand, by just taking this step, he's reminding him, do you remember when the Spirit of God came on you? Was it, did he fill you with timidity? Did he really fill you with cowardice? Did he fill you with this tendency to shrink back? No. What did he give you? When the Spirit of God came in you, he gave you power and love and self-discipline. When the Spirit of God speaks through you, church, and you are willing to take that step and fan that gift into flame that God has imparted to you, he, it will come with power. When, when, when you take that step and you're thinking, man, this is just such an awkward word, but God wants me to encourage this sister in the Lord, and okay, I'm just going to do it. Have you ever been at that place of hesitation? You take the step and you speak and it's like, oh my goodness, did that really come out of me? Whoa. I mean, has that happened? If it's not happened to you, it's going to happen to you. It's going to happen to you because the speaking is a God thing. It is a grace thing, if I can word it that way, in which God wants to pour out his grace upon you and then through you because it's not about you. It's about you taking the step and letting God speak to you and through you. That is God's grace. That is, his power is going to move through you. His love. I quoted the verse in 1 Corinthians 14, 1, and it says, Eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. But I left out the beginning part. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts. So here's my charge to you. The Spirit that God wants to um, pour His, the, the Spirit of God who wants to pour this grace through you is not just going to do it with power, but with love. Without love, forget about operating in the Spirit. Forget about speaking on His behalf. Don't even do that. Let God fill you with His love. Follow the way of love. That is the most excellent way. And eagerly desire spiritual gifts. And then lastly, self-discipline, in which he, in which that, that is not like me, and I've just got to be disciplined in this. This word actually means clear-headed thinking, soberness, as opposed to being drunk and having alcohol control you. It is God's spirit controlling you. Self-control truly is spirit control. Do you follow me here? It is the surrender of self so that it is not me who's in charge here, but it is me who is surrendered with God in charge. That is this that he's speaking of. And when that happens, it's not this cloudy thinking. It's not this, wow, should I or should I not? I'm like, let me just weigh the options here. Let me see if I don't do it then. And if, but if I do do it, look at all the consequences. God, I don't know what to do. And the, the gun has gone off and you've been sitting there for 10 seconds. And guess what? The race is over. What is it that holds us back? Because the answer is just a step. That is how you fan it into flame. You take the step. It's a yielded and surrendered step. It is the me getting out of the way so that God can be in the way. It is, it is allowing God's grace to flow through me. 
That is what this is about. And it is truly simple. It's just that in our minds, we see all the problems and the difficulties and the what ifs. Let God speak to your heart. He will do that. That's the Father's heart. My encouragement then is this. Church, fan into flame what God has deposited already into your heart. Fan that into flame. Let the Spirit of God move you to take that step, to to, to get past the inadequacies, to get past the fears and the what-ifs, and to be yielded in His presence. And when we come to that moment, do I step out or do I not? Simple. Just do it. Just do it. Jeremiah, do not be afraid. Church, can you stand with me? If you want to kneel where we are, but if we could have the lights out, if we could just allow God to minister to our hearts. As we are moving out of this season of the missions trip, I can assure you that Satan's number one tactic is to take that which has been imparted to you in this missions trip and steal it from you, hide it, put it under a bushel, to do whatever he can to keep you quiet. But church, we're going to fan this thing into flame, aren't we? We're going to allow God's Spirit to stir in us this gifting, and we will be bold because we're going to take that step. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, Whatever you need to do to get me out of the way, whatever inadequacies I am facing, whatever fears I am facing, whatever what-if questions I am asking, we are praying, God, right now, fan this thing into flame, God. Don't let the devil quiet my mouth. Don't let the devil stir these things in me so that I run, but rather so that I come, and I come to you, and in faith take that step. Fan this into flame, O God. Let your grace be poured out upon us. Move in power. Move in love. Move in soberness of thinking. But move in us, God. And use us, Lord, as your instruments. Instruments of your grace, God. Your grace. By grace. Through faith. May you do this, God. 